0: Welcome to another episode of the Loop Ventures Brain Tech Podcast. I'm Doug Linton. On this episode, we have a really special guest. Usually, we talk to doctors and scientists researching neuroscience, but this guest is actually a patient. Ian Burkhart, who was previously paralyzed in an accident, is one of the few people in the world today using a neural interface. With the help of his doctors, Ian's been able to regain some motor function by using the neural interface. Today, we'll hear Ian's experiences in what it's like to use a neural interface, how he'd like to see the industry develop, and his philosophy on having a positive attitude. Here is Ian Burkhart. All right. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So Ian, I think you have a really unique perspective on the topic we spent a lot of time talking about on this show, which is the neural implant space. And so maybe to start, could you share with the audience a little bit about your background story?
1: Certainly. So when I was 19 years old, I had just finished my freshman year of college and was kind of expecting that I had the world at my fingertips. I was majoring in video production, and right after we finished up final exams, a few of my friends survived. Went to the beach, drove down from Ohio to North Carolina, and I had an accident there on the beach. I dove into a wave like I had done many times before, but something was just a little bit different this time. I was really pushed down by that wave, and what I was diving into, there had been a sandbar that drifted in, so the location that I was diving was only a few feet deep. As soon as I hit my head on the sandbar, I knew something was wrong because I couldn't move at all to get up. I tried everything I could, and it just felt like there was an elephant sitting on top of me. So at that point, I knew that I was paralyzed. I didn't know the extent of my injuries, but I knew that something was severely wrong, and I couldn't move any of my muscles.
0: And so... Luckily, your friends figured out what was going on, and they were able to rescue you from the water. And so, you know, after you're faced with this tremendous challenge, how did you maybe find out about this space of neural implants that might be helpful to improve some of the function that you had lost from that injury?
1: After being diagnosed as a C5 quadriplegic and losing most of my function of my limbs including my hands you know I really knew that I was lucky in a sense that I got injured when I did because I knew that in my lifetime I would see some sort of great either medical advancement or technological advancement that would give me some of my lost ability back so that was something that I always had in the back of my mind and I was always looking for and it just so happened that when I was doing some physical therapy with the doctors at Ohio State University, I you know, kept mentioning to them that I was curious about what I can look forward to in the future and they were working on a study that kind of fit me perfectly
0: cool. So you've always been, it sounds like maybe a little bit of a technological optimist. Is that fair to say? Certainly. That's cool. And so you found out about the implant. What were sort of the considerations that went through your mind when you discovered that this was even an option for you?
1: So the picture that was painted to me when I first initially heard about the study was they wanted to use a Implanted array on the surface of my motor cortex to control a muscle stimulation device that would restore hand movement. For me, that was great because I knew how important my hands were after not being able to use them. And, you know, I would have really done anything at that point to regain some function in my hands. Not that my life was, not going well, things were fine. But I really just wanted to strive for any independence that I could get. So that's where the the fear kind of subsided of needing neurosurgery to be a part of this study, because I knew the possibility of improving my quality of life.
0: Got it. And then so you went through with surgery, you got the implant. What was I guess your first experience when you, you realized that you've got this device now in your body, I mean, mentally, did you think any differently about medicine and sort of how you had come to that decision? And did you ever regret it?
1: I definitely haven't regret it. It's something that, you know, I'm glad I've done. The only thing that I'm maybe a little disappointed with or upset, whatever you want to call it, is just the speed at how things are advancing. I'd certainly like for those things to go quicker, but just the sheer fact that it's possible is something that is extremely exciting to me, and it just really provides a lot of hope for the future of what it's going to be like for people with spinal cord injuries.
0: It really is exciting technology. So now that you you have the implant, could you tell us a little bit about how the training process
1: worked? Yeah, so the training process is really teaching the computer how my brain thinks so the computer can understand what my neural patterns are like for us. What we do is we'll have kind of scripted blocks of training. And that's something where the computer is giving me a command as far as hand open, hand close, index flexion, index extension, whatever the movements may be that we're working on at that particular time. And, as it's telling me to think about hand open is just taking snapshots of data of what my neural activity looks like when i'm thinking about hand open so that it knows in the future every time it sees that same or similar pattern that i'm thinking about a hand open it's something that's a little challenging because as i say you know thinking about hand open or hand closed i didn't even know what that was like to think about until you know, just a few years ago after I had to, trying to break down exactly what muscles you need to move, what parts of your body you're trying to activate to make those movements happen is something that's completely foreign to me because the first 19 years of my life, I wanted to open my hand. I just opened my hand. I didn't think about it whatsoever.
0: As you were describing that, I was actually just trying to do that myself And I'm curious, like, how did you overcome that? I'm trying to separate the actual motion from thinking about the motion. And I can imagine how difficult that is, you know, when you're trying to train on this interface. So was there like a trick to it or any breakthrough that you had where all of a sudden it sort of just made sense?
1: The biggest thing that helped me was once we had enough training done and we were able to start using the system, any feedback that I got from the system as far as, you know, if I am thinking about hand opening and I see my hand open and I see that positive feedback that tells me that I'm thinking about it in the right way. And that just is that positive reinforcement. And even on the negative side, if I'm thinking about hand opening and my hand isn't opening, if it's doing something else or if it's just sitting there stagnant, I know that I'm thinking about it, not in the correct way. And it's partially how I'm thinking about it. It's partially how the computer is deciding what I'm thinking about. But when you get to the point where you can work together with the computer, having that reinforcement really helps, you know, snowball all of the success. That makes a lot of
0: sense. Yeah. And so how often did you train in the beginning with the interface? And then how has that training changed over time as you've used it?
1: So it's still something that we have to train our decoders every day, every session that I use it because... Of all the neuroplasticity that happens in the brain, that the shift from and variation from day to day is enough to make it so I can't really load up a standard decoder from one session to the next and have it run. But with that being said, the training is much easier now because I've done so much of it. You know, initially it was something where it would take all of my mental energy and I would leave a session and just feel completely mentally fatigued, like I just sat through an eight-hour exam. And now it's something that I don't even think about a whole lot. It's just what I do.
0: That's awesome. And it sounds like, as you mentioned neuroplasticity and, and you mentioned the motor cortex earlier, you've maybe developed sort of an interest in neuroscience a little bit. Is that a field that is something you always were a little interested in or just evolved from your training and from necessity here?
1: You know, it's something that I really never had any interest in until it was about me. And same thing with any of the medical aspects of my spinal cord injury. I really had no interest at all until it was very relevant to my situation. And that's, you know, now it's I can't read enough about it because I'm so interested. And it's just something that is very personal to me. So it really piqued my interest. Absolutely.
0: Let me shift gears slightly and talk about your progress so far. So I know that it's been well documented that you've been able to regain some use of your hand. And I know there's amazing video that we'll add to the show notes here where you're picking up a cup and you're pouring water into another cup and there's one with dice. And so you've been able to do a lot of these practical things with your hand, as well as play Guitar Hero, which I thought was awesome. And I'm curious, what are some of your new goals now that you've sort of had some of these initial milestones? What are your new goals with your training?
1: So yeah, like you said, we've been able to do quite a bit of things that you know you could relate to your practical life. And those are the new goals as far as any more things that can make it a little bit more complex, but still something that's extremely practical. And seeing how many of those different moves we can combine together and having different neural decoders competing at the same time for one movement. It's really, you know, speeding up the system and making it more robust are kind of the next things to to iron out after we've proved that, yes, this does work and it works pretty well.
0: And one thing I think we had talked about this briefly when we first met over the phone, one of the frustrations you had, aside from, you know, you'd obviously want development to happen faster, is that you can't yet take the interface out of the lab. And I'm curious, what have doctors said to you or how have they kind of conveyed to you what the timeline might look like where you can use this in a broader sense?
1: Yeah, unfortunately right now it wouldn't be 100% practical to take the system out of the lab. And, you know, that's something that I keep pushing the doctors and researchers for all the time as far as let's get it out of the lab because then I can use it for more than two to three hours at a time. And I can give you guys plenty of data and tell you really what's wrong with it so you can fix that. So, you know, I'm going to, be building a lot of work for them to do but it's something that we're all working towards miniaturizing some of the components just so it's not as bulky making the system more robust so you don't have to do as much retraining so it's something that you know is more realistic to use on a daily basis it's something that we're all working towards it's just not really sure when it's going to be hopefully within the next five years it will be something that I'm using outside of the lab in some capacity. And, you know, I think that's a safe bet. There's the necessary evil that is the FDA that kind of monitors and most people would say slows down everything. But, you know, they're really there for my benefit and for patients like me to make sure that things like this are safe and that everything they're doing is has the, the I's dotted and the T's crossed So, that there's not going to be any issues.
0: Yeah, I hope that the five year timeline works as well. It feels like there's a lot of progress going on, and and it definitely seems reasonable from where we're at now. I wanted to ask another question sort of given your unique experience here as a user of a neural interface, what would be the one thing you would tell sort of doctors and even companies that are making these devices? What should they know from the patient's perspective? What's like the most important thing you've learned that you think they should know?
1: The biggest thing is to sit down with the patients that you're making this device for and actually get their feedback as many steps as possible along the way. Because at the end of the day, if you have something that is great from an engineering and technological side, but is not practical, the adherence is going to drop all the way down and no one's ever going to use it. And that's not going to be a successful device. So getting all the feedback you can from patients is critical in designing something that will really be easy to use and people will want to use. On top of that, it's just making it do something that the patient has an issue with right now. The things that I have an issue with are picking objects up and manipulating objects and really doing those with one hand because I do have movement through my elbow and my shoulder where I can pick things up by using two hands together or depending upon what the object is, kind of hooking my finger into it. But it's those things that I can't do, like reach out for a cup and pick it up and take a drink out of it. And those are the things that I really want the possibility to do.
0: As you mentioned the movement that you do have, you said through the the shoulder and the elbow. I'm curious as you've used the device in the lab to restore some motion to the hand, has any of that transferred? Has anything sort of changed outside the lab too?
1: So what I was initially told about the study is, you know, there's a great opportunity for this to be the way that other people with quadriplegia and spinal cord injuries and paralysis can, you know, regain movement in their lives. But I knew it was something that, it's going to work when I'm in the lab and then get disconnected and go home and I'm back to where I was. That was good in the sense that, you know, because I knew I wasn't going to have it forever since it is just study, I didn't get super attached to it. But through the last three to four years of working on the study, it's been an intensive occupational therapy session for me. And I've Learned and adapted a lot of ways that now I can pick up different objects. So it's really had some unintended consequences of carryover into my everyday life because I'm able to train and teach my body how to manipulate the muscles that I can move while I'm using the system so I can pick something up. It allows me to, when I'm not using the system, move those muscles in a similar fashion or a little bit different so that I can pick up objects without the system altogether. The system certainly benefits me the most when it's on, but I have benefited from it greatly when the system is off just from my experience with it.
0: That's really, I mean, that's awesome to hear. And I think it's a good segue into a philosophical question I wanted to ask, which is that as I talked to you on the phone before and even now, one thing that I think comes through very clearly is just that you've embraced a very positive attitude to approaching the situation that you have been dealt. And I'm just curious, like where does that mental strength come from? Because I think it's rare and unique and it seems it it's afforded you a lot of interesting opportunities here.
1: It certainly has. I really will attest a lot of my success to having a positive outlook on life. And it kind of all goes back to what I said earlier, as far as kind of always knowing that there'd be some sort of improvement in my life and something to look forward to that motivated me to kind of be the best I can be given the circumstances. So when I was initially in it's okay, I want to get, Any muscle that I can move, I want to make that muscle as strong as possible. Or anything that I can do for myself, I want to do that for myself and get better and better at it. That really helped me get into the mind frame of adjusting to the spinal cord injury, allowing me to realize what had happened to my body, not necessarily accepting it, but adjusting to it and being as successful as I can be given the current circumstances. And then now that I'm able to be a part of this research study, it's just reinforcing all of those thoughts that I had all along and I can see it happening.
0: I mean, the attitude. It's, it's an inspiration really. I mean, it's the way that everyone should really look at life, I think, regardless of those situations. So it's something we all can learn from for sure. Let me ask two last questions, Ian. One is, could you just tell us a little bit about the Ian Burkhart Foundation and what you're doing there?
1: Certainly. So last fall, I finally was able to launch the Ian Burkhart Foundation, and that was something that I kind of saw as a long time coming. After having a spinal cord injury and learning about the impacts it has on an individual, it's tough from a mental side to a physical side to a financial side, and it puts a lot of stress on individuals. I was lucky in the sense that my community really kind of rallied around me when I had my accident and they helped raise quite a bit of funds that allowed me to purchase a wheelchair accessible van, make some modifications to my family home so that I could be independent and live in my own home and do a lot of things. And those are things that are never really covered by insurance. And I realized that, you know, I was really lucky in that sense. And, you know, I just wanted to take any sort of power or attention that I was able to get with the research study and what we're doing and steamroll that into something where we can help other people. So it's set up to raise funds for individuals with spinal cord injuries to cover things that will allow them to be more independent that aren't generally covered by insurance or other funding sources. And, you know, it's something that is really personal to me because I've seen firsthand what it's like, how... You know, a simple device that's maybe a couple hundred dollars can really impact your quality of life and make you more independent. And that's something that, you know, I think anyone should have access to.
0: And this is definitely an important cause. We'll include the link to your foundation website in our show notes as well. So let me ask you our last question. This is a question we ask everybody we have on the show. In your experience, as you said, you've sort of become interested in neuroscience and have read you know, and studied some of the things that now you use very actively. I'm curious, is there any one book or paper or some other resource that you think was the most helpful thing in learning about neuroscience that you would recommend
1: we all read? Well, that's a tough question. The biggest thing for me has just been trying to immerse myself in all the different products that are out there. And, you know, that goes from something that might be only used in animal studies, but then, you know, just seeing the potential for that to be used in a human study and in human intervention really kind of gave me the most hope. So, knowing that there's a lot of work that is being done. And then also imagining what the future could be like if you take something like that and make it better and better. Absolutely.
0: We have a lot of hope for the future, too. And so those are all our questions for today. Ian, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you.